Good morning, church. It's always great to see you, always great to worship with you, and uh, what a perfect day for us to lift high the name of Jesus together. Do you have a Bible with you today? Uh, if you do, would you go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5? And if you got out the door without your Bible today, we've got one for you in the pew rack in front of you. And uh, if you're going to use that pew Bible, I'll give you a shortcut. You'll find Matthew chapter 5, the passage we're going to study today, on page 858 in that pew Bible. And uh, just a quick side note, I want to make sure you know that at the uh, close of our time together today, we're going to worship through the Lord's Supper. And so uh, we welcome all believers in Christ to uh, eat and drink with us. If you got into the room this morning without the elements, uh, they're in a container like this. They're still out there in the upper lobby. Now would be a great time to go grab that and, uh, and then come back and settle in to Matthew chapter 5 with us. All right. With certain labels come certain basic lifestyle commitments. For example, if I told you that I am an Olympic gymnast. You would expect there to be certain commitments in my life that uphold that label. So you would expect that I live in a gym, that I follow a strict diet and workout plan, that I'm practicing my cartwheels. I guess that's what Olympic gymnasts do. I go to competitions. I have a lot of ribbons and all kinds of things. But that is not the case. Surprisingly, so I cannot rightly call myself an Olympic gymnast, nor can I call myself a professional bowler or a vegan or a seltzer enthusiast. None of those labels do I have the sort of lifestyle commitment that would go along with them. And what about those who would call themselves Christians? Are there lifestyle commitments that a person who calls himself a Christian are committed to? Well, the answer to this is yes, and we know the answer is yes because this is what Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and we're in Matthew 5, uh, right in the middle of, of the Sermon on the Mount, and in this section of teaching... Jesus is explaining to his followers and those who are curious what it means to be his follower. He's describing the sort of lifestyle that we would expect to find in Christian people. The Sermon on the Mount is not instructions for how one finds salvation, but rather this is how one lives their salvation. So once we've been delivered by Christ, what does he demand of us? Once we've been rescued by him, what does he require of us? And I wonder, do you know what Jesus requires of you? How would you explain by your lifestyle that you belong to Jesus? Does your life reflect a commitment to Christ? The passage we're studying this morning in Matthew 5 is a call to commitment. My purpose in preaching this passage today is for you to know and pursue the commitments of a Christ follower. Are there any number of people who have opinions on this matter? There's much that can be said about the commitments of the Christian life, but today we're going to let Jesus speak for himself and tell us the sorts of things we should be committed to. And so I want you to follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. 
Jesus is speaking, and he says this. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce, but I tell you, Everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Before we dive into this passage, I want to speak a word of comfort. I'm sure that there are several among us who have fallen short of these words of Jesus in ways that have left deep scars. And as a result, a a passage that we should be able to celebrate, a passage that calls for marital faithfulness and commitment might actually feel like a hammer to those who have already experienced the healing and forgiveness of God for such failures. It's shocking that even sitting in the sanctuary, the tempter will lead us to heap up guilt and shame where God has already poured out grace. So let me speak to you, friend, and remind you of the patient and powerful grace of God that has already forgiven your sins and is leading you in repentance. Don't forget 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So rest in the mercy and grace of your advocate, Jesus Christ, and pray for me even now as I speak the hope of Christ to those who need it this morning. So now to our passage. There there are three paragraphs in this section, and if you remember the way we described this last week, um, here in this part of chapter 5, Jesus goes through six different statements where he explains God's intent of some specific Old Testament laws. Six different times he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. Jesus' issue is not with the written law of God, but with the interpretation, the application of it. And so we pick up three of these statements this morning, each of them speaking to a type of commitment that is required for people who have experienced the rescue of Christ. Three commitments here. What are the commitments of followers of Jesus? The first commitment is a commitment to purity. If you and I are going to be followers of Jesus Christ, one of the sure evidences that we truly belong to Him is a commitment to purity. It's a purity from the inside out. 
So the commitment to purity in this passage comes in the form of instructions about the relationship between lust and adultery. And look at what Jesus says in verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus' audience was familiar with the prohibition against adultery. It, it comes from the Ten Commandments. It is the seventh of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And imagine this scene with me. If Jesus had asked for a show of hands on the hillside that day, overlooking the Sea of Galilee, raise your hand if you have committed adultery. I'm sure there might have been a few hands that were raised, but not many. And why is that? Well, because they had interpreted the law of God in a way that exonerated them from guilt. You and I do the exact same thing with God's laws. We interpret and apply them in a way that exonerate us from guilt. Religious leaders in Jesus' day were teaching that men kept the seventh commandment as long as they avoided the physical act of adultery itself. And so they gave this conveniently narrow definition of sexual sin and a broad definition of sexual purity. But look at what Jesus said in verse 28. He said, I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is huge. Jesus takes the seventh commandment on adultery and he interprets it through the tenth commandment on coveting. So according to Jesus, we aren't guilty of adultery only in the act but also in the wanting. It's important that you're familiar with the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment reads this way in Exodus 20, verse 17. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Coveting is the desire to have something or someone that is not yours. It's the desire that precedes the taking Coveting on its own is an idolatrous rebellion against God. When we covet, we reject what God has provided for us, and we crave what he has given to someone else, and we act as our own God to get what we want. Now, after this explanation, imagine Jesus again asks for a show of hands. Based on what I've just explained how many of you on this hillside are guilty of adultery? And every one of those hands would have gone up. They were all guilty. And who among us is innocent? Some among us may try to argue that equating lust with adultery is an overreaction, and this shows how little we understand our sin. Who better to explain to us the depths and the power of sin than the very one who is the fulfillment and the accomplisher of all that salvation requires? 
The consumption of sexual imagery is not a victimless sin. In fact, there are multiple victims when we engage in this activity. It victimizes the person you are viewing. It dishonors them. It treats them as something other than human. They become merely a tool for your own satisfaction. It victimizes others in your life. You have to listen closely to Jesus. This is adultery. You are giving to another that which belongs to your spouse. It victimizes your own soul. It rots you from the inside out. It makes you a liar, a deceiver, a thief, a taker. Over the course of my ministry, I've done roughly 150 funerals. Not once, not at any funeral have we ever praised a person for their entrapment in pornography it has never added value to a life lust has only ever destroyed so what are we supposed to do about it well jesus tells us in verse 29 if your right eye causes you to sin gouge it out and throw it away it's better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your old body to be thrown into hell Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And this is where it gets a little tricky for us this morning. I only have one of these and one of these. So if, if you would just make a line down here to the right, just be as expeditious as possible. Maybe, can someone go get the paper cutter from the church office? That We could double up the hand chopping perhaps by then. Convenient little eye popper from Amazon. Can I just tell you something about Jesus as a teacher? He's shocking. He's going to get your attention. He's not just going to hold your hand and pat your forehead and say it's okay. He's going to make sure you understand the gravity of what he's saying. Cut off your hand. Pluck out your eye. It's, it's, it's better than going to hell. Now, is Jesus being literal in this instance? Does he really mean go chop off your hand, go pluck out your eye? Uh, no. There is an ancient church father named Origen who thought he was being literal, and he did his best to eliminate a source of lust from his life, Jesus is not being literal, not in any sense. Because here's what you got to know about the kind of sinner I am. If you pluck out my right eye, I still have a left eye. And if you cut off my right hand, I still have a left hand. And if I have no eyes and no hands, I am still a desperate sinner to my core. So what does Jesus mean when he says, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye? Here's what he is saying to us. He's saying the answer to our sin is not in the loss of limbs, nor is, nor is it in passing out burkas to our women. The answer is a ruthless daily battle with sin. Holiness happens in the Christian life in two different ways. We've talked about this around here uh, several times. Holiness comes from plucking weeds as well as cultivating roses. What I mean by that, by plucking weeds, I mean we do whatever is necessary to eliminate lust and its vehicles from our lives. Cut it out. Throw it in the fire. Buy a dumb phone. 
Do whatever you have to do. In fact, speak a confession to a brother or a sister who will help you and aid you in your battle against sin. By growing roses, I mean we cultivate the inner Christian life, the Christ-like life, so that whenever people see us, they see Christ in us. We begin to view people as Jesus views them. We think of people as Jesus thinks about them. We value people as Jesus values them. There is such hope in Jesus for freedom and healing from sexual sin. The answer is in Jesus. At the cross, he broke the chains of sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. You've been set free by him. And I testify to you today that I have seen Jesus heal people who have committed grievous sexual sin. Several years ago, one of my best friends confessed his adultery to his wife. He sinned in the wanting and in the taking. And the aftermath of that was brutal. And he said to me at one point, he said, I never imagined the consequences would be this bad. I never thought about how deeply I was damaging my wife. And now, many years later, through a mutual commitment to Christ and a long healing, he and his wife have a marriage like they never had before. To be sure, the scars are still there. Healing is ongoing. But in Christ, they have found their healing, and so can you. Because those who follow Jesus are committed to purity inside and out. There's a second commitment that Jesus calls us to in this passage. It's a commitment to holy marriage. We're committed to purity, and Christ's followers are also committed to holy marriages. Look at verses 31 and 32. Jesus said, uh, it's also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife except in a case of sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What's Jesus referring to here? He's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. And that's where the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the people on this hillside with him, uh, picked up this idea that divorce requires a certificate, this written certificate. But what the people were hearing and practicing on that day was not exactly true. It wasn't a true interpretation or understanding of Deuteronomy 24. Here's what's happening in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. God is giving instructions related to remarriage that would, in fact, protect a woman who has been a victim of divorce one or two times. And so in that instruction, it says if a man gives his wife a certificate of divorce, and she remarries, and then that husband divorces her, her first husband cannot marry her again. But what religious leaders and power brokers of Jesus' day had done is they honed in on that certificate of divorce language. They weren't so concerned with the rest of the teaching in that passage. They were concerned with the mechanics of the divorce. In that passage, it said, if a man found something indecent about his wife, there was a whole body of work around defining what something indecent meant as grounds of divorce. Copious amounts of written material from rabbis, religious leaders, 
giving interpretation to the phrase in Deuteronomy 24.1, something indecent. You want to know what something indecent entailed according to these religious leaders. These were some of, but not all, the grounds by which a man could divorce a woman. If she were unable to conceive children, if she became deaf, if she had epilepsy or leprosy or warts, if her head was wedge-shaped or turnip-shaped or hammer-shaped, or if her head was sunk in or flat in the back, If she had poor posture or thinning hair or no eyebrows or one eyebrow or bushy eyebrows or eyes set too high or eyes set too low or cross-eyed or no eyelashes or eyes of two different colors or watery eyes or eyes as big as a calf or as small as a goose, a nose that was too big or too little, ears that were too small or floppy. If she had an overbite or an underbite or missing teeth or a swollen belly or a protruding navel or a dark complexion or bony ankles or swollen feet or if she were ambidextrous. If she ate something he had forbidden her to eat, if she visited the home of her parents or if against her husband's wishes her parents moved into the same city to be near their daughter... If she broke the laws of Moses or other Jewish customs regarding propriety or dress, or if she burned his supper, or if he simply found someone he thought was prettier, all these were religious grounds for divorce. There's obviously something messed up with religious people when they aren't concerned with the reasons for divorce, but only the paperwork. So in verse 32, Jesus gives the true interpretation of God's instructions on divorce. Verse 32, on, excuse me, on divorce. On verse 32, he says, I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife except in a case of sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So in this scenario, if you divorced your wife because her head was shaped like a turnip, and then you go and marry a woman who has a head as round as a beach ball, you are in an illegitimate marriage and are therefore an adulterer. And what's more, if you marry the now single turnip-headed woman who was divorced by her empty-headed husband, then you have overstepped your bounds. You are now an adulterer with her. Here's what Jesus is saying. There are commitments held in heaven, even if the commonwealth does not recognize them. I want to be very careful here. Because immediately, we're going through our head of different scenarios. What about this? This is my story. This is, I've, I've, I, is, what is Jesus? This is not all that the Bible has to say on this subject. And it must be interacted with carefully thoughtfully, humbly. There may be, in fact, places where you are in violation of what Jesus has called us to. And in that case, remember, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So my encouragement is not so much to focus on different scenarios that may 
create anxiety, but rather let's focus on what Jesus is elevating here, and he is elevating holy marriage. Jesus is serious about marriage, and so should we. We should be the same as him in this regard. As followers of Jesus, we are to be committed to marriages that shine like lights before men so they might glorify our Father in heaven. But it is hard. Marriage is hard. An older gentleman told me once, my wife and I have never considered divorce. Murder, yes, but never divorce. That is such an old man joke. Like top five old man jokes right there. It's a great one. Here's what I think this commitment looks like. One example. One day I was talking to a dear Christian friend whose marriage was in real trouble. His wife was very upset with him. He was very upset with her. And he said this to me. He said, these days I am choosing to love my wife. That's what a Christian does when their marriage has problems. Christian marriage is not based on feelings, but commitments. And our vows, our wedding vows, that are spoken to God first and then to each other, we are committing to marriages that glorify God. So then when the feelings ebb, the commitment remains. And then the feelings can blossom again and be healed and stronger and deeper when the commitment holds. And here's why we are so committed to lifelong, happy, God-glorifying marriages. It is because we know that Christian marriages tell a bigger story. Just in the union of husband and wife, the story of the mysteries of heaven are told to those who witness it. What do I mean by that? Well, marriage tells the story of God's joy in salvation. Isaiah 62, 5, as a groom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. When God redeems his people, he rejoices over them like a groom over his bride. When I do a wedding ceremony, I'm standing down front and the, the doors open and here comes the bride walked by her dad down the aisle Every eye in that room goes to the bride except for mine. Every time I look at the groom, I want to see that guy see his bride. And all the emotion that comes in that moment, it's a picture of God's rejoicing over you at your salvation. And then also marriage tells of the church's commitment to Christ in Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So in the wife's submission, in the, uh, to the, to, in the wife's submission to the husband, we see a picture of the church saying yes to Jesus. Whatever you want, Lord. Wherever you want to send me, whatever you want from me, Christ, I'm going to follow you all the way. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. We see a picture of Christ's great sacrifice. So a Christian husband loves his wife with the self-sacrifice of Jesus, not the tyranny of a dictator. 
And then marriage also tells of our eternal purity in Revelation 19, 7 and 8. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She, has, she was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. Marriage also tells of our eternal satisfaction, Revelation 19, 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And marriage also tells of our eternal glory, Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So in the wedding ceremony, when the bride comes down the aisle to her groom, we see a a, a rehearsal of heaven. That holy city with all of its inhabitants, all of us, we are the beautiful bride. God is our groom. So Christian marriages speak to this greater divine reality. God has given us marriage so we would know him and love him and walk with him and long for heaven. The question remains, is your marriage a reflection of heaven or hell? And if we will walk with Christ, we will know every blessing, every grace, every kindness from God that we would have a lifelong happy marriage that glorifies Him. If you are married, keep your vows in the hope and grace of Jesus. And if you are considering divorce, there is such hope for healing in Jesus Christ. If you are divorced, listen to me closely. You are the beloved of Christ. You are not a second-hand Christian. You are not damaged goods. You are Christ's precious child. All of us Christian people, we must be committed to marriages that obey Christ and glorify Him. And in fact, our church emphasizes this in our very membership covenant. When we recite this line, we say, we will honor marriage as a sacred covenant between a man and a woman because followers of Jesus are committed to holy marriages. We're committed to purity from the inside out. We're committed to holy marriages. And finally, followers of Jesus are committed to truth-telling. We are committed to truth-telling. In verse 33, Jesus says, Again, you've heard it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. I tell you, don't take an oath at all. Verse 37, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. So you may be wondering, why, why is this paragraph lumped in with the marriage talk, but it makes perfect sense when we understand the subject matter here. Jesus has warned against making oaths. In the first century, in the absence of paper contracts, people would make commitments by swearing oaths. And the sincerity of your oath was proven by the value of the thing you were swearing on. So we see that in the examples that Jesus gives. These examples show the escalating nature of oaths. So you might swear by Jerusalem, the holy city, to repay a debt. Or if you're really serious, then you'll swear an oath by the earth itself. But if you really, really mean what you're committing to, then you might swear by heaven. Well, what would happen in this first century setting is that people would swear an oath and then they would attach it to something meaningful like Jerusalem. 
But then when the time came to fulfill the oath, they would back out by saying, well, I might have swore by Jerusalem. I didn't swear by earth. I didn't swear by heaven. It was the equivalent of verbally crossing your fingers when you made a commitment. The swearing of oaths was not for the sake of honesty. It was actually for the sake of dishonesty. And this is where you and I say, what a weird practice. This this really doesn't represent anything in, in our modern culture. Wrong! We do this all the time. All the time. Here's one of our biggest oaths will say, I swear to God. It's been shortened now in popular vernacular to just on God. It's the same thing. But you know what you want to do when you want to be really serious and you want to swear on something more important than God? You swear on mama. I swear on my mother's grave. Or shortened today, on my mama all the time. We do the exact same thing. We are not so different from these ancient people. We're exactly the same. We try to cover up falsehood by swearing. No, I really, really mean this. Every single one of us, we are like the prophet Isaiah, who in Isaiah chapter 6 stood before God in all of his holy, holy holiness, and he said, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. Every one of us guilty of the sin of lying, every one of us. Does this mean that we shouldn't take oaths of any kind? Well, that's how the Quakers interpreted this. I think they're wrong. God swears oaths throughout Scripture. Jesus had to testify under oath before the Jewish Supreme Court at his crucifixion. What Jesus emphasized in this teaching was that Honest people don't have to resort to oaths. It, it wasn't that they, that they should refuse to take oaths if required by some external authority to do so. So swearing or oath-taking, it's a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. Christians should say what they mean and mean what they say. Why? Because that's how Christ speaks. Jesus spoke the truth and he meant what he said when he said Your sins are forgiven. He spoke truth when he said, I have overcome the world. He spoke truth when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He spoke truth when he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. He spoke truth when he said, it is finished. And he spoke truth when he said, I am coming soon. There is gravity to our words And if Christ has really set us free from sin, we don't have to live in the little deceptions of everyday speech anymore. So if a friend is told by you that you're going to be there to help, do it. And if you tell a lender you're going to pay them back, do it. And if you tell your boss you're going to do the project, do it. And when we speak a commitment as a church at baby dedication, keep the commitment. And if you tell your beloved, Till death do us part, let your yes be yes. If you are not a Christian, maybe you are considering Jesus. I hope you'll listen closely to what Jesus has said right here in this section. You need to understand that Jesus has said yes to you. 
What I mean by that word picture is he said yes to you when he died on the cross for your sins, even though you are a desperate sinner because you are a desperate sinner. Every one of us guilty of everything Jesus has articulated here. But when he died on the cross in our place for our sins, he's the completely innocent one, the perfect lamb of God for our sin. He's never committed any sin, and yet he died as if he was guilty of every lie, every act of lust, every broken commitment. He died in your place for your sin. He said yes to you. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And his promise is that if you will turn from your sin and your self-righteousness and turn to Jesus in faith, if you'll trust him with your eternity, you'll be saved forever. The Bible's clear that no one is saved by good works. We are saved by faith alone in Jesus. Your words to Jesus matter. If you will say yes to Jesus, you gain eternity. Say no, you throw it all away. Two words encompass our eternal destiny. We've got to be committed to the truth as followers of Jesus. So here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has called us to three commitments. To be sure, these are not the only commitments of the Christian life, but they are more than enough for us today. Followers of Jesus are committed to purity. It's a purity from the inside out. We are committed to holy marriages. And we are committed to truth-telling. We could also say it this way, that followers of Jesus are committed to think like Christ, to love like Christ, and to speak like Christ. Does your life reflect a commitment to Jesus according to Jesus? Perhaps not. But don't lose heart because Jesus is committed to you. He has proven his love for you by dying for you while you were still a sinner. And he shows his commitment to you by exposing the schemes of the enemy. Satan, the father of lies, has told you lies like this. It's okay to look. You deserve better. Words don't matter. And Jesus, your advocate, has come to your defense to rescue you from the domain of darkness and to bring you into the light. And so if you find yourself in the pit of sin, I want to give you a prayer for the pit. As you urgently, daily attack your sin this week, this day, here's a prayer you can use as a simple tool in your regular engagement. It comes from Psalm 51, verse 10. God, create a clean heart in me. All of Psalm 51 is perfect for the pit. From the depths of our brokenness, Psalm 51 is a confession of sin and a reminder of God's enormous grace, His incredible love to the most desperate of sinners. But a shorthand prayer, one you can tuck in your back pocket and carry with you to work and just around the house and in quiet moments in your brain, Psalm 51.10, God create a clean heart in me. God create a clean heart in me. God create a clean heart in me. He will always hear that prayer. He will always answer yes to that prayer. God, create a clean heart in me. He'll do it. He will give you new purity, new love, new words, He will make you like Jesus. Let's pray together. 
Jesus, thank you for your words that are shocking to us, shocking in that they expose our sin, shocking in that they show us the seriousness of sin, shocking in that they show us the power of your grace and the enormity of your love for us. So we praise you for this. Holy Spirit, bring your comfort to those who are uncomfortable this morning by what we have read and studied. May your comfort come in the form of their confession and repentance and their trust in Christ. Father, help my brothers and sisters today. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who are afflicted by sexual sin of all kinds. Bring freedom, renewed strength, renewed vigor in the pursuit of holiness today. And for my brothers and sisters in here whose marriages are crumbling and on the brink, dear Jesus, bring new life to them. Let husband and wife, each one, come before your throne in humility that they might be renewed to you and renewed to one another. And Lord, let us be a people who say what we mean because that's how you have spoken to us. Thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to respond to this 